This is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education, uh, bringing you a new and exciting episode uh, with Dr. Lauren Lieberman, a good friend of mine and colleague and mentor uh, who I've known now for, I, I, I think, close to a decade or something, which is, yeah. it's like, it still, it's all seems like so new to me still, but now I'm starting to feel like I'm, I'm part of the, the family and part of the crew. Uh, I've been here for a minute now. But uh, anyways, um, yeah, so we're here. We're going to talk about working with kids with visual impairments in general. Um, and I, I'm taking this from obviously Dr. Obviously, to many of my listeners, they know the name Dr. Lauren Lieberman. She has uh, created Campabilities, which is a sports camp for kids with visual impairments. She's written, I didn't look it up, but I'm sure a lot, a lot, a lot of articles and practitioner articles and presentations on working with kids with visual impairments um, or deaf blindness. And she's done all types of work. And I've had the pleasure to work with her quite a few times over the last few years too. So um, we're going to talk about visual impairments and we're going to kind of talk using the Winnick uh, textbook, Winnick Peretta textbook on adaptive physical education and sport to guide our conversation today. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. It's just, uh, it's great to be here. And I really think it's important to include kids with visual impairments and kids with deaf blindness in the conversation about who we're going to be teaching when we get out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, you have an, an immense amount of uh, uh, reach and experience in this area. Uh, so can you, before we get into like everything, can you describe yourself and your experiences with visual impairments a little bit? Sure. I started working with people with visual impairments as an undergrad at Westchester University. We had a VIP program, visually impaired person program on campus. Every semester we hosted people who are visually impaired. And then I went my senior year in college and volunteered at Ski for Light. So I helped people who are blind and visually impaired skiing. And I just got totally hooked on working with people with visual impairment. And I just had this aha moment like, I have to do this for my life. And so after I finished my master's at University of Wisconsin La Crosse, I applied to tons of different schools for the blind, schools for the deaf, because I also sign. And I ended up at Perkins School for the Blind. And I was in the deaf blind program and I taught physical education, swimming. I coached all the kids in the school. So I worked with a lot of kids with visual impairments. And I really feel like that was my fourth degree <laughs> from Perkins because we took classes, I worked with mobility instructors and te teachers of the visually impaired. And I, I just really learned a lot about kids with visual impairment. So when I went back and did my doctorate and got my first job, I noticed that my students at Brockport were not getting kids with visual impairments in our practicum every week all kinds of kids would come to our practicum, but not kids with visual impairments. So I said, I have to do something about this because the, the last research at that time was 1996, 95, and the most recent research was in 85, and there's hardly anything. So I thought I need to do a program, we need to do research, and I really need to teach my students and teach the kids what they can do. So then 1996, we started Camp Abilities, and that started the teaching, research, program development, of of kids with visual impairments in my life and that's basically what i 
boy do besides all my work with scott and inclusion and <laughs> and, and general ape i i yeah. kids with visual impairment and additional disabilities yeah absolutely you know we had a, i think it's like their perkins kind of offshoots and there was one I, I visited several times when i lived in detroit uh, which were like, they worked, I think they were residential and they worked with kids with severe profound, but they had to have a visual impairment as well. And uh, I actually took our, um, like the executive kind of committee for uh, capabilities there so we could see it and try to, yeah. So I was always really, really impressed with the things that they were doing there. That's awesome. It sounds like you, yeah, an immense amount of, of experience in that. So let's just kind of start out and what would, what is your definition of a visual impairment? Well, the definition of course in IDEA is a visual impairment that's significant enough to affect a child's educational performance without an intervention, without some kind of intervention. So it could even just be legally blind. Mm -hmm. And, and socially, even kids with low vision also are let are kind of fall through the cracks they might not be adversely affect educationally, but socially kids sometimes will st step back or not see social cues. And so, but, but I use that legal definition of it, if it adversely affects their educational performance. Very good. And, and, and within that, you know, just like what are some common causes and some common areas of visual impairment that you see? Sure. So you think about the kids that come to camp. So I think about like, typically you have children with albinism, Mm -hmm. There's a loss of pigment and kids typically have low vision, but it gets worse with glare and light. And then also we get kids with retinopathy of prematurity where they're born premature and they have issues also with their retina. And then we also have like glaucoma where they might have interocular fluid pressing on their eyes, which also affects their retina and retinitis pigmentosa. Mm -hmm. is when the children have, it starts off with night blindness and then they get peripheral vision loss and end up with a small bit of vision if, if they have vision in the end. So that's, that's retino, retinitis pigmentosa, RP, as opposed to retinopathy of prematurity, of prematurity, which is ROP. And then you have some kids that have septo-optic dysplasia, which is another type of of a uh, type of visual impairment. Uh, those are, are the more common ones that, you, yeah. that you'll see. And, you know, you might have some kids with optic atrophy where they have problems with their, with their optic nerve and, and damage to their optic nerve. So it's not really the problem with the eye, it's the optic nerve. And then some kids might have what, what we call in older adults is macular degeneration, but in kids it's called Stargardt's, Stargardt's disease, which is a central vision loss issue. Can you describe uh, the difference in acquired and congenital, you know, visual impairments and how that might impact how you work with the child? So when I, when I'm working with children with visual impairments, the difference between kids who are born with a, a visual impairment, which is a congenital visual impairment, and the difference between a child who might have a progressive or an acquired, maybe an accident acquired visual impairment, there's a difference in that kids who are born with a visual impairment might need you to explain walk like a dog or jump like a rabbit. They might not have any idea what a diving board is. And so you have to make sure that you set the foundation of what you're talking about. You can't assume that kids 
who have a congenital visual impairment know what specific things are in the environment. In the same sense, you also have to find out how old were kids when they acquired their visual impairment, if they have an acquired visual impairment, because then you'll know if they know what a bear looks like or a diving board, what a diving board looks like, if they know how to open up a locker or remember where their locker is. And so these are just the concept development is the most important thing. You need to set the foundation if a child has a congenital visual impairment from birth. Within that, so those are, you know, obviously some like some some specific types that obviously will many of them need kind of special adaptations based on their specific needs. Um, more generally, uh, what like what? So when we talk about kids with visual impairments, I think a lot of people when I talk to my undergrads, especially, um, I think they think about people that are, uh, you know, B1s and or, or you know, completely blind. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, as I, as I'm aware of that's, that's a lot less, although it's obviously a group that we want to kind of work with and work towards, like that's a lot rarer than kids that have partial sight. Right. Right. So this is a good point. So there is one type of visual impairment that you might also see, which is when kids have cancer in the eye. And in some cases they might have to have their eye removed and then you would have total blindness. But in most cases, kids, even if they're B1, they have some light perception. And so you might have kids that have a peripheral vision loss where they just see centrally. And so that's called a field loss. So you have central vision loss. No, so peripheral vision loss, sorry. And then you just see centrally. But then, like I said, with macular degeneration, you might have a central field loss where you really don't see the middle of your vision and you're only seeing the peripheral perspective. And then you might also have hemianopia where one side is totally blocked and you're only seeing seeing vision in one side and you might see kids turn their head. Sure. See. And so if it's a field loss, you need to find out where their vision is best. Mm. But then you also might have an acuity issue where it's the clarity of their vision. And so can they see a ball coming at them? distinctly or what's the background look like related to the ball size and shape and then you might have some kids who really can't tell some colors apart and you have to find out what colors they see best so you know which team that you should put them on what pennies they should wear what ball you should use and so you have to find out what they can see and that's what you ask them what can you see you don't ask them how much they can see because they haven't probably seen what we see yeah, absolutely. What like so what are some of the big differences when working with a child that has partial sight versus total blindness? Oh, I would just make sure that the child stands where they need to stand for the demonstration. Mm-hmm. But I also think that in either case you have to do very clear explanations and don't say like this or over there. Those terms are not okay. Even with sighted kids. I mean, you want to be as explicit as possible if you're teaching. You want to make sure every child understands the whole part whole of the lesson. Yeah. And so when you have, when I, when I'm, I have a person who's blind or visually impaired in my class, I make sure that everything is explained. For example, I might have the person in the back of the class just say, hey, 
Jonathan, can you just give me a shout out? Hey, it's Jonathan. So they know how many kids are there. I might have that child come in early. Pre-teaching is a big one too. The kids need to know what unit you're working on. They need to come in early and they need to see where all the equipment is. They need to understand the dimensions of the field, what equipment you're using, the rules of the game, the skills that they're going to be doing. For example, in, in volleyball, where's the typical serving line? How do you rotate? What are the positions? What are the different skills called? That needs to happen before unit works happens because it's going to go quickly. Most physical education classes move quickly, but it moves more quickly than a child acquiring the knowledge of that unit in that moment. So pre-teaching has to happen at the beginning of every unit. Yeah, yeah. And so that pre-teaching kind of component is 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 teaching them about the rules of the game or, or the perimeter of the court prior to, to getting yeah. into actually learning about it. You know, Lauren, I know you've also done a lot with UDL, right? Like Universal Design for Learning. Uh-huh. Uh, you recently have a book out um, in that. And, and I know um, potentially, you know, you, something that you just mentioned is that a lot of the, these things that we do for kids with disabilities in general is often just good pedagogy, right? And it's applying the principles of, of universal design for learning. Um, like just with that, because you're, you're an expert in that area, this maybe is going off the thing that I, I was talking about, but like, how do you see, um, like, can, can you, can you elaborate a little bit how you envision applying UDL so that all kids, including kids with visual impairments are, are, uh, integrated and accepted? Scott, this is a great question because in particular, Kids with visual impairments have said they hate standing out more than they already do. So when you say, here's a beeping ball, it's just for you, Jonathan. Oh, here's a, here's a bells on the net. This is just for you. So, so basically allowing modified equipment, modified rules and variations in the unit to be used for everyone. So when I am doing pitching and batting, the child can pick these four different balls. One of the balls is a beeping ball. You can pick a pitch or you can pitch it to yourself or you can bat off a tee. Everybody gets that choice. So the idea is that it's not just kids with disabilities who are getting those modifications or support that every child has that option if they want it. And we've done research that showed that kids using modified equipment have the same skill level as they do without modified equipment. So if they're using a beeping ball or a bell ball, or they're running to a sound source, they're, they're doing the same performance. And so we encourage teachers to offer the variety of options in their classes for everyone from the beginning. It's not, I'm making a modification for this child is I'm making, I'm universally designing my lesson so every child can be included. And You'd be surprised how many kids are like, oh, I'm going to serve from that service line instead of way back here because that's where I'm more comfortable. Or I'm going to hit the ball off the tee because I really want to make sure I get on base. That's fine. We we offered that. We said you could take advantage of that and you can. Absolutely. I think I think students need to see kind of that that students with disabilities being successful as well. Now, you you did say that a lot of the students, you know, they don't like to be kind of put on display as well. Let's start out with that and then let's kind of go into like some maybe specifics on how we can kind of overcome, you know, issues and make sure that students are getting quality, you know, PE experiences. Mm -hmm. But like, 
when you when you saw that, when you saw these kids not having a good experience, um, what are some of the factors that are related to them maybe not having these great experiences at times? Well, sometimes it's the physical education teacher just not knowing what to do. That mm-hmm. that was a big one. Uh, I don't know if you've read any of the research by by Justin Hagel and his team, but it's really illuminating the fact that physical education teachers not knowing what to do, it's not in, intentional bullying, but it marginalizes kids enough that they that they're labeled and that they're they're uh, at risk for ridicule and teasing. And that has been a big issue. Paraeducators not knowing what to do. A lot of kids with visual impairments have paraeducators. If they're not trained and they don't know how to facilitate inclusion, they don't know how to facilitate socialization, they're at risk for marginalizing the child and opening them up for bullying. And so these are just some things that we have to consider mm-hmm. when we talk about about universally designing our lessons. But the the bullying, but the other the other big thing that was so evident was that the more teachers universally design their lessons, the more they modified, the more the kids with who are visually impaired and my guess all the other kids with disabilities were equal to their peers. They didn't stand out as much. So they weren't bullied as much. When the teacher made no attempt to make any modifications or adaptations, they stood out more and were more at risk for bullying. And so it's so simple to universally design your lesson and especially if you if you need help, you can collaborate with the teacher, the visually impaired, the orientation mobility instructor, even the special ed teacher, and saying, this is the unit I'm doing. What what modifications do you think I should do? Even, I, I mean, ask the child themselves. Actually, first, you should ask the child and then work with the other teachers. Then you make sure that you are modifying that activity so that the kids performance isn't so different than their peers and they're not standing out and they're not as easily being ridiculed. Like, for example, a child who's blind, who's scared of running, might run with a robotic performance. Their arms might be straight, their legs might be straight, they might put their hands out in front of them. It looks different. It does. But that's what makes them comfortable because they're scared. But if you let them run with a human guide or you had them run on a guide wire, their movement is going to be a lot more smooth, perhaps a lot more, uh, a lot more biomechanically correct, and they might not be teased as much. But a lot of kids have said they don't want to run because kids make fun of them when they run. Mm. And we have to make sure that we teach those fundamental movement skills when they're younger so that they feel comfortable running and jumping and sliding and throwing. I've seen that a lot too. And it's something I think, I think that, you know, PE teachers, they need to know that certain, you know, students um, because of whatever, maybe their disability, that they have these certain characteristics, such as a lot of kids with visual impairments, they're afraid of their body being on display. And they're also, especially with something like running, they don't always know what's in front of them. Right. And so um, that, that can also be kind of a scary, scary uh, uh, experience as well, I think, for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you said earlier, like having verbal, you know, things and, and all those things and kind of pre-teaching lessons and, and also maybe training the other peers. I think those are all, and I think you are framing all this in kind of a UDL way, right? So we put all these things in kind of regardless. We're putting in tactile modeling. We are putting in pre-teaching. We're talking putting in better verbal uh, uh, descriptions throughout. Mm-hmm. So um, moving forward, I just want to like, so 
you know, I think you have a ton of experience working with kids with visual impairments, right? Like, so can you maybe talk to me? We've highlighted some kids that maybe have some bullying issues and stuff like that. What are some success stories you've seen and what are, what are you seeing um, teachers do and students do that makes them successful in the PE uh, uh, setting? That's a great question. Well, first of all, I think a lot of communication, what unit is coming up next? Because so many teachers, they don't know the background of their kids with visual impairments. They might assume that they've never done archery before or you never played soccer. What's your background? So this, these are the units that are coming up. This is when they're coming up. Pre-teaching, like we said, that's a big one. Trained peer tutors. Now, I know a lot of kids will have their paraeducator and maybe they'll come to physical education, which they should. We have to train the paraeducator. But after third grade, that's not cool. Not going to PE with your paraeducator. So training peer tutors is a gift, a gift to the peer tutors. It's a gift to the child with a visual impairment. And to the teacher, if you're a physical education teacher and you have a child with a visual impairment in your class, you have to constantly look over, make sure they're doing the activity correctly, safely, and that they're not out in the middle of nowhere going to crash into something. But having kids that really understand guiding techniques, instruction, feedback, it gives you peace of mind. It also gives them a friend that understands them. They end up being friends outside of class. Often I've seen kids <clears throat> end up running, being running partners or biking partners outside of class. And <clears throat> one mother even said to me, kids know her name when they go down the hallway. That means a lot. Because sometimes the kids aren't always in that academic class with the kids that are in their physical education. So, so I'm just gonna reiterate, communication, pre-teaching, train paraeducators, train peer tutors. And then when they're teaching, of course, universally design the lesson, but teaching whole part whole, meaning teach the whole skill or activity, break it down into parts with consistent cues, put the whole thing together again, and then refine. Mm -hmm. because, because kids with visual impairments can do everything their peers can do if they're held to those high expectations. So making sure they're getting very clear, specific feedback. What are you doing correctly? You need to swing your arms. Well, I'm going to swing my arms when I'm running, but I have to swing my arms forward and back with my elbows bent. That clear explanation has to be done. And so if kids need to come in early to class or stay later or have an additional class. So for example, I was zooming into an IEP last week, little girl that's in first grade and she she's going to have a self-contained APE class and that APE teacher is going to pre-teach for the inclusive class. She's going to work with the general PE teacher and the vision teacher. And so every week they look ahead and they're going to teach this little girl what they're going to do the next week. That is perfect. That's a perfect example. They get the socialization, they get the skill development, and then the, the M team is working together. In a best case scenario, they might even have two inclusive classes for the week if it's possible. So those are the kind of things that we need to look at. And, and then also making sure, so the other thing we have to remember when we are giving instruction, we're using verbal instruction, but when a child can't see the demonstration, we have to make sure that we use physical guidance, like moving them through the motion 
So physical guidance is when the teacher or the peer tutor moves the child through the motion. For example, you're going to step with this foot and move that foot, and then you're going to kick with this foot, and then physically moving them through. That's physical guidance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the, it, it helpful if the child feels the person doing the motion and so i might say my arms are swinging forward and back here feel my arm that's tactile modeling when the child feels the instructor doing the motion some people in the vision field call that hand over hand but in our field because it's not always a hand Mm -hmm. we call it tactile modeling where the child feels you or appear and physical guidance when we move the child through the motion and, and I often like to ask them, how do you prefer to be taught? Some kids don't care because some, some skills are more easily taught with one method or the other. So if they say they don't care, that's great. But sometimes they do care. Like, I don't like people touching me. Yeah, I don't, yeah. just, you show me how to do it. And so that way, that way, that child's getting the instruction that they prefer in in their mode that they prefer so they're much more apt to learn it but you know i mean it's funny because some of the kids like when they come to camp and they're feeling like these big football players and the kids feeling this guy's arm and they get so distracted because they get this huge muscly arm and they're like wow this guy's (laughs) what are you doing again you know so sometimes it takes a minute to like get over the shock of uh of the body of the person yeah, I've had, I've struggled more, not with actually doing it, but when I show, you know, you're trying to teach undergraduate students how to properly do these things. So it's tactile modeling or whatever, and you try to get students to kind of try that with each other. And it's sometimes a little awkward or, you know, I think asking students is a really, really good idea uh, on their preferred kind of method. I, you know, I have a follow-up question on that too. So we talked about the importance of trained peer tutors. Would you, is that, do you think that's an uncomfortable thing to kind of put um, the trained peer tutors in that role of giving physical guidance and, and uh, tactile modeling? Or maybe deal with those quote unquote blindisms, those stereotypical behaviors we'll see with some kids with, um, that are visually impaired where they're maybe rocking or doing atypical kind of things, quote unquote, atypical things that might make their peers uncomfortable, such as digging in their eyes and all that. No, I think it needs to be normalized. Yeah, I think because that that level of intimate instruction, I mean, you're talking about in some cases, you know, in the pool, I, I do try to match gender with the same gender. It, it's a little easier, especially like when you're in locker room and things. If you if you if you t- like tiptoe around it, then it's not OK. Mm. It makes it seem like it's inappropriate. But if you say this is the way this person learns, because they don't just learn physic in physical activity, they're learning computers that way, they're learning cooking that way, they're learning activities of daily living that way. We have to normalize that. And let's just say the person is 22 years old and they're learning how to navigate a grocery store and people think, oh, that's not appropriate. We have to normalize that. So I think that's a really good question, but I think it's it's okay to say, you're going to stand behind me and I'm going to show you, you're going to put your arm right and near that person's body is against your body. You're showing them how to, let's say you're swimming and you're showing them how to extend your arm and swim the crawl stroke. How else are they going to learn it? You know, so yeah. we have to be able to, 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 to seeming seamlessly jump into these tactile teaching methods in an, in a, in an easy fashion. 
Very, yeah, absolutely. Um, so another area that I've seen a lot of, uh, there's two, two kind of other areas I'd like to talk about briefly about talking about teaching strategies. I always see really interesting and cool uh, uh, equipment modifications that are, are given to kids with uh, visual impairments that are very specific to visual impairments. We've talked a lot about, like I've heard you say things like like beeper balls um, and, and such. So there are a lot of auditory things. What what other things are you seeing um, equipment wise that, that makes students successful in their PE curriculum? That's a great question. So if you have kids that have some low vision, you can also do, for example, lines on the floor so that Let's just say you're you're you you have a child that that has and you're and you're doing like let's say it's a it's a relay race or or you're doing some locomotor skills having a very good color contrast on the floor or on the balance beam is very helpful color contrast but the other thing that's helpful is if you have kids either run or do locomotor skills along a wall or a guide wire now, all guide wire is is a is a rope pulled across the gym that's taut and there's a little loop around it mm -hmm. and it's often maybe around a carabiner or a little key ring so that it slides so the child can do locomotor skills with their peers without being fearful yeah another, another way is just having them do locomotor skills in the gym guided with a peer guided by a peer a trained peer hopefully so those are just some of uh, the modifications. Also, if you're doing, let's say you're doing station work, making sure there's some either like a line on the wall or a, something on the floor that gives them indication how to get from station to station. And if like as part of pre-teaching, making sure they know, oh, station three is jump roping. These are the different kinds of jump ropes I can use. These are the different kinds of activities I can do. And so whether it's a poster, whether it's Braille or a video or a peer tutor, they shouldn't have to guess or ask. Another important thing is incidental learning. So for example, if somebody came into the gym and started giving explanations, or if there's something that was not verbal that's happening in the gym, the, making sure that the student with a visual impairment gets that incidental information because we don't want them to be left out just because it wasn't auditory or wasn't explicitly taught. Absolutely. One of, one of the things that you said that sparked an idea in my head too, and I kind of want to get into this briefly too. Um, you talked about kind of making, um, make, like having students on the spot or having them know, know where they're at. And one thing I do is I use so, you know, I use the game goal ball and I, I love goal ball. You know, I played it in camp. Um, I, I kind of coached it for about a year, kind of as assistant ish. Um, and uh, there's actually a huge, uh, there's a huge goal ball tournament where I was from in Warren, Michigan, which is right outside of Detroit. So there's a big, huge one that they would do every year. And I go, you know, several times, which was always an incredible experience to kind of go and see it at a really competitive thing. And, you know, I remember also being there and like somebody had a baby and they started crying and they <laughs> were asked to leave. Um, but yeah, so, you know, um, I use goalball and to me, you know, goalball is a true disability sport. It's for people with disabilities specifically. It's not an adapted sport off of another, you know, kind of able-bodied sport. And I think it's really special because of that. But um, when I taught in the schools, even, I would teach goalball and I would teach it to the general ed high schoolers too. And they love it. 
But I think goalball is amazing because it really utilizes a lot of um, kind of the strategies that make the students successful kind of all like it's they're all embedded within there. Right. You have you have um, you have rope with tape on it. Right. Fluorescent tape on it so they can know where their stations are at. You're using a ball that has, you know, no uh, sound in it. And they're, you know, using their body the entire time to kind of feel and communicate. So, you know, I've always been a really big advocate of not just teaching um, my, my uh, kids with visual impairments about goalball, but I, I really am big on teaching disability sports, especially at the high school level to kind of all students, because I think it embodies um, disability culture and and uh and all these things in such a unique way and it's such a fun and competitive and unique sport and um and you know i i guess you know i kind of went on my own tangent about how much i love goalball um but you know i just kind of would thought like what is your like your experience and and things seeing maybe successful or unsuccessful ways of trying to incorporate you know sports that are for visual kids with visual impairments in a PE setting, maybe like a an integrated general PE setting. Oh, I just I think teaching Paralympic sport and disability yeah. sport is is excellent. It evens the playing field. It opens people's eyes. And when I, I, my anticipatory set is, I always show them a video of that sport being played at a high level, whether it's be baseball or or five aside blind soccer, goalball. Then they have a huge respect for athletes with visual impairments. And then they see, wow, this isn't just some silly game. This is a real international sport. And it you really don't need a lot of equipment. For example, in five-a-side soccer, you, you if you had one ball with bells in it, you know, you could practice without the ball with bells in it, but you have that one IBSA really good ball, you can use that and, and have five-a-side soccer. Goal ball, if you had one goal ball, I mean, you'd want more if you wanted to practice yeah. first, but you know, one ball's like $125 and then you have just blindfolds and rope with tape over it. Hopefully you have some elbow pads and knee pads from your program. So these are really not that hard to implement. The hardest thing is getting the buy-in from the physical education teachers. And that's why I think we need to make sure that this is taught in higher ed intro classes so that I feel comfortable teaching some of these disability sports. Like we not this Friday, but the next Friday, we're having Paralympic Day. And we're teaching all of our students a variety of Paralympic sports that they'll be able to implement. And this is in our general PE class because we think that they need to know these things. And it really, the kids just love it. We taught our middle school here in Brockport goalball and they wanted to make it an intramural sport. They loved it so much. And I, I love goalball. I think it's so competitive and so unique. Um, but you know, one of the things too with that, uh, yeah, the, the the one issue I've seen, and I love goalball, but I I ended up when I would teach it in like a, a classroom of like thirty five students, um, I would I would only show it kind of, and I wouldn't get into full gameplay, uh, and I would go to something like beat baseball because I could get way more students involved. The issue to me with goalball and teaching it in this big setting is it's six on six or it's, it's three on three period, you know, like, or, cause if you get more than that, even if you got two lanes going on, if you're playing a real game of it, the noise, the noise yeah. is it just, and so it becomes really problematic. Um, you know, I have gotten it maybe two courts in a really big gym, 
But even that, you know, you're kind of dealing with, um, you know, really watering down the skills and all these things. So, <clears throat> you know, my biggest thing, I and it's, you know, I love like what you said, I think teaching Paralympic sports, either integrating them, putting sitting volleyball into a volleyball unit or um, doing their own kind of unit on Paralympic sports is an awesome idea to highlight the power of disability. Um, but I found goalball to be, even though it's my, like my favorite of the disability sports, it might be my, probably goes my, it's probably my second favorite sport. I love basketball as some of my listeners know, but like goalball is probably my second favorite sport. Um, but I have a hard time teaching to it because in, at least in a general, you know, 25, 30 student thing. Um, but I don't know if you've seen something different than I have, but yeah. No, I think, I do think that like they love wheelchair basketball, wheelchair yeah. rugby, we play tennis, wheelchair tennis, and that's just great eye-opening experience for our students. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think teaching goalball is a really important part of our programs. One of the other things I'm going to ask you, uh, and then we'll kind of wrap this up, but like one thing that we haven't talked about, and I think it's pretty core in the the visual impairment world uh, or teaching world is uh, the expanded core curriculum. Uh, can you briefly kind of talk about the expanded core curriculum and how it fits into PE? Oh, sure, Scott, that's a great question. So the expanded core curriculum, also affectionately known in the VI world as ECC, is skills that kids need to know in order for them to be successful adults. Because what, what the field was finding was Kids who are getting all A's, flying through high school, graduated, but then didn't have enough skills to be independent in society. So when the field looked at what are they missing, there are nine components, and I'll just say them briefly. One is recreation, which is easy for us to do. Self-determination, orientation mobility, socialization, assistive technology, career awareness, sensory efficiency uh i'm not sure <laughs> and, uh, i know i'm i'll, I'll remember oh, compensatory and access skills okay and go. so the, the only ones that maybe you don't know sensory efficiency is your ability to use your other senses and compensatory and access skills is your ability to utilize for example large print braille Maybe you need your monocular to be able to access the environment. That might also be your ability to access technology. And we did a study, which was just published in the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness, on physical activity and the ECC. We are the only subject area that can easily, seamlessly infuse every component of the ECC into our field. And we did it at our sports camp. We did it at Camp Abilities, but just about everything we were doing is something that you could do in physical education. For example, we used we used those, uh, when, you, when you hold your phone up to a QR code, we used QR codes and if kids held their phone up to the QR code, here is a weight bench and it showed you like four or five different activities you could do through your phone on that piece of equipment. QR codes are very common nowadays. Mm -hmm. And we also used fitness trackers. Kids use the fitness trackers. We taught them how to use the technology on, on treadmills, on bicycles. And technology is a big part of our world now. And also showing them how to access yoga classes uh, on their computers. 
it sounds like you're doing a lot with like technology and but you're hitting multiple because you're hitting that self-determination a lot too where the kids are like you know they're they're advocating for themselves they're saying what they want to do uh, and socialization yeah. because like I, yeah. I know on my app, I have a few friends we're trying to beat each other every day on our, on our fitness app. So, so they all, they all intertwine and we are intentionally, we can intentionally infuse all of those areas, but you also can work with your mobility instructors and your vision, vision teachers, tell them what you're doing. They can tell you what they're doing and you can help each other. For example, if I am teaching goal ball. Where am I going to get the rules? Where am I going to find the role models? That's a, a computer project that a child can do and get that in Braille, but then that person can print that out or send it to all the other students. And so making sure that that we have that vision person to help facilitate Braille or, or, or technology communication if we need that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, you know, Thank you, Lauren. I'm going to kind of start wrapping this up. And, and I kind of want to just know, you know, I have kind of two final things, but like, where do you like in the next five to 10 years? Um, like, what would you like to see more maybe in, in, in the field of physical education and adapted physical education and how we teach kids with disabilities or visual impairments, maybe specifically, but we can just talk about kids with disabilities now too. Like how, how should we improve? I believe we, we need to teach universal design for learning because too many teachers are still writing their lesson plan and changing the lesson plan at the bottom for kids with disabilities. And they're totally left out. The other thing we need to change is large class sizes because what's happening now, and I've been seeing this with my student teachers, the kids with disabilities are being taught in the hallway or in the cafeteria, and it's not okay the way that that they're being marginalized. We need to treat kids with disabilities like first-class citizens that they are, not second-class citizens in the hallway or in the cafeteria or the classroom. Mm -hmm. COVID doesn't help, by the way. COVID's not helping. But, <laughs> but so I, I really feel like universal design for learning and also making sure that kids with disabilities get those foundational skills so they're not behind their peers. The other thing is I, I noticed the other day I was looking for a role model with a visual impairment, an outdoor adventure role model, and there aren't many. So we need to promote outdoor adventure for all kids. We need to do more outdoor activities, including kids with and without disabilities. That sounds a little bit too like maybe we need more representation, better representation, and, and maybe more of athletes and, and, you know, the broad term of athletes and those engaged in physical activity with a variety of different disabilities. Um, that's been a critique I think we made on this podcast a little while ago about the Paralympics even. Paralympics is great. They're doing wonderful things. But if you look at the people that they highlight, it's often, um, you know, people with very photogenic, quote unquote, disabilities um, with, you know, maybe a, a, a single amputee and everything else is, you know, um, they look like they could be a model, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so we don't always have, you know, people with a variety of other disabilities um, out there. So, and, and then the, you know, because I think that matters a lot, representation towards, you know, seeing, you know, or, or, or you know, knowing that somebody's out there that's, that's doing this, that has similar experiences as you, lets you say, I can do this too. And, um, you know, we have to either 
promote that more so there's more people doing that and or make sure that we know who they are so that we can um, highlight them and connect them. A great example of that, Scott, is remember Rising Phoenix? Did you see that movie, Rising Phoenix? Yes, yes. We actually did a recap of that movie, which is where we talked about it. I talked to a Paralympic athlete about it. Yeah. But did you notice that that was just people with amputations? Yes. And they they had very few other disabilities in that, which is not representation of the Paralympics. So it was a great movie. I'm not going to say it wasn't. But the representation of the of the world of people with disabilities that compete in the Paralympics wasn't there. Absolutely. No, we, uh, we, ha I had somebody on who we have, uh, at our university, she's graduating this year, but she's the only D one, uh, Paralympic uh, slash Paralympic athlete. So she's in the track and field. Wow. Um, her name is Jesse Hines. Yeah. She's, I think she, uh, I think it's the sprint and I think it's the discus she does. Um, and she, I think she has to recall, it's been a journey for her. She's been on twice and she talked about the 2016 Brazil ones, but then she talked about COVID. And then we talked about rising Phoenix in there too, because that's really messed up there. Um, the trials and all these things, and mm -hmm. it's been rough. Wow. Um, my, my last question to you is just, you know, what, so we've talked about teaching kids with visual impairments and PE. And, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a beginning teacher, I'm a teacher who hasn't worked kids with, with visual impairments very much. What is one piece of advice that you'd want them to take <coughs> away from this podcast? Don't be afraid to ask for help. And you can ask the child, say, you know, I've never had a student with a visual impairment. Can you please tell me, how do you learn best? But don't ask them in front of the class, like have a meeting with them, communicate. Have them come to class a few minutes early, every class. This is what we're doing today. This is the equipment. Which ones do you want to use? Mm. You have to be humble and accept when you don't know what to do. And don't wait. Don't wait until it's too late because that can have a huge impression on that child when they're included and when they're not. And which teacher do you want to be? And so I, I think it's really important to talk to the child talk to the vision teacher, the mobility instructor. Don't be afraid to reach out for help because you are a role model too. You are going to set the stage. You are also going to set the tone for the class, how accepting they're going to be, or you're going to be, you're going to be, how accepting you're going to be is how accepting they're going to be. And so the more you embrace that student and include them, the, the better they're going to be. So I'm just going to give you an example. I have a graduate student right now as an undergrad at Brockport, she's blind and she, my, like a lot of the people didn't know what to do for activity classes, but instead of asking her before the class, oftentimes during the class, they would try to figure it out and it just didn't work. And it was really frustrating. Fortunately, this student has a 4.0 in our class, she had the highest GPA of anyone. Now she's in our graduate program again, getting a 4.0, doing tons of research, and now she's gonna be doing her doctorate at Old Dominion University for in, in adapted physical education. And we just wanna make sure that people treat her with respect and ask her ahead of time. There were too many times when she was just told not to come to class because the teacher didn't know what to do. That's just not right. And so the, you know, this is the kind of tone we can set and the kind of attitude we can provide 
for the future of society. I mean, we're teaching kids to value diversity and value difference and embrace it and showing them that we will be humble and learn what to do if we don't know, that sets a tone. And that's what we want for the future. Absolutely. Very powerful words. Uh, well, thank you again, Lauren, for taking the time and, and coming on and contributing. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. It was great. I'm, I'm happy to do it. And let me know if you need